You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. We're continuing our series of conversations today with women of faith. As women's voices in faith communities become more necessary, more influential, I'm talking with women who are energized and activated by some of our most urgent policy and spiritual and philosophical questions. Today, Sister Simone Campbell. She's a Catholic nun, a lawyer, and the founder of the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. Her name may be familiar to you because she's also one of the nuns on the bus, a traveling band of nuns who are pushing for political and social change. And Sister Simone has some ambivalence about that, not about the work, but about the spotlight. A year or so ago, she wrote an essay about the danger of becoming a celebrity nun. And she said, while influence, connections and leverage are all vital in the world of politics, I fear they can be toxic to spiritual life. I'm afraid that I'm holding on to my notoriety for notoriety's sake. We're going to talk about that as Sister Simone joins us and a whole lot more. I'd like to know if your faith community is as deeply committed and as active to social justice issues as you want them to be, as you think they need to be. So if you're in a faith community that you love, but you wish they'd step out more, they'd be more active in social justice issues, I'd like to hear from you this morning. If you're in a faith community that does just that, that is getting involved in some of our most urgent justice issues of the day, I'd like to hear about that as well. Here's the phone number, 651 227 800-242-2828. And let me say this. This is not just an opportunity to call up and talk about how wonderful, you know, the work that your your church or mosque or whatever faith community is doing. I'd like you to be really analytical. Here's a place where we could really make change. Here's the reason why maybe we don't get as involved as we could. So think about that. As you think about calling, I'd love to hear your experience on this. 651-227-6000, 800-242-2828, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Sister Simone joins us this morning from NPR, the studio in D.C. And Sister, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. I'm so glad to be here, Carrie. Thanks for the invite. As you can tell, I'm pretty interested in your examination of your own public popularity, because I, I, well, for one thing, I think that kind of self-examination is in short supply in our culture. So do you tell yourself, look, the ends of this, the popularity means that I get stuff done, or do you still feel pretty deeply uncomfortable about it? Well, I think it's probably a bit of both. Uh, the The real anxiety for me is that I get tempted to hold on to really good things. Like I like this opportunity to be on NPR and talk to the people in Minnesota. And th- that if I hold on to that, it's like closing my fists around it. Then I'm not open to receive the new. And it's also becomes more about me and what I like as opposed to what people need. And so trying to keep myself aware of the other, of the needs of the people of our earth in this time, that's so challenging. Um, that That's where my faith draws me. 
and not be so caught up in my own self-talk about different events that are <laughs> fun and great and delightful. But but that focus is then on me and not on what we're called to be as a community it, of it, believers. But it is the nature, I think as I suggested, is the nature of the culture to be drawn to the person who is charismatic and magnetic uh, that's part of the reason we're talking to you. You have some great stuff to say, and you've done some good work. But you can also say it in a way that I think breaks through a lot of the noise. You know the value of that, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's it's not about me and mine. It's about a gift given. And so my religious community, I'm a sister of social service, we're dedicated to the Holy Spirit. And so the way we, I think of it, and my sisters think of it, is that they're gifts given for the sake of the community. And it's using those gifts for the sake of others is the key. And if I, I thought that it was just something that I'd done on my own, that it was all by myself. It was so wonderful <laughs> that, that I think <laughs> that would really uh, shut down the connective quality because the, the like just before doing a show like this, I, my prayer is may people listening hear what they need. Mm. Eh, if I say something that's good, that's great, but may people hear what they need. So it's more about giving the gift into the the universe, into your audience for, for you, so that the gift is given. For me, that's the spiritual call. Yeah. And if I get more about, oh, how well did I do, the self-critical voice, and let's face it, women have a tendency to a little more self-criticism oh, yeah. than some of the, our male colleagues, and that that self-criticism then can undermine the very gifts that are being given. So as long as I'm aware of the needs of others... I stay out of the critical voice and just attempt to respond and be present. Let me, let me, yeah, it does. Let me take a call here from Tim in Plymouth because I'm, as you know, I'm asking listeners to evaluate their faith community. Where could they be more active in social justice issues? What are they doing that's that's emboldening and energizing? But where else could they be looking to do good work? And Tim, I'm really glad you called. Tell me about that. Well, I've been active in a number of faith communities, mission and outreach boards, and I would love to see those organizations, A, stop toxic charity, and B, get much more strategic about creating racial equity and uh, closing the disparity gap, which I think is the greatest social sin. Did you say stop toxic charity? Correct. What, what is that? Well, toxic charity are well-intended efforts, um, and they're appropriate when there's an emergency, a disaster, et cetera, to keep people's dignity and basic needs met. But when those continue after an emergency, they can actually uh, create a paternalistic dependence on the giver. Oh, and I think that's one of the things that I think we... We really need to stop that and only engage in efforts that are going to build people's self depend or self uh, what sufficiency. Boy, sister, this is so good for you. Okay, Tim. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Perfect. What do you think about his his description of toxic charity? 
Well, I do believe that some charity is more about the giver than the receiver, that I feel good donating or being involved and that it's more about me. The point that he made, Tim made in terms of the uh, income and wealth gaps in our nation and the fact of the systemic issues of racism that are driving people apart. Oh, I 100% agree with that. In fact, our organization network is um, has a Lenten project that's looking at the structural issues of racism that create the racial income and wealth disparity in our nation. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is for us folks, uh, for us white folks um, like myself, we can be very individualistic and just think, oh, was I inappropriate? Did I say something wrong? Was I not sensitive in how I approach something? But the real issue, the deeper issue is the systemic challenges that are created by well-intentioned legislation. We We have 12 pieces of legislation passed by the U.S. Congress that on their face look fine, mm-hmm. but then end up creating a, um, a a racial divide. For instance, the GI Bill, which is the one that, that surprised me the most, is the GI Bill was intended for all of the returning veterans from uh, World War II. It was a great program. It built the middle class in the United States. And I've met so many people who said their family got a leg up because of it. They could buy a house. They could be a part of the middle class. But what happened in the African-American community is that returning GIs couldn't get loans. It was in the administration of that that they couldn't buy houses because the um, folks giving the loan said, oh, that's a dangerous area. That's not a good investment and developed this whole program that's called redlining, where the African-American community did not benefit from the GI Bill the way the white community did. And it's becoming aware of those systemic issues Mm -hmm. are at the heart of uh, making the change that Tim calls for. But we say in our faith, we call it the two feet. You, you do need charity. You need that one-on-one. You need that engagement. But the more challenging place is, is this structural systemic engagement on social justice. You know, you said something a minute ago at the beginning of that answer that I don't want to miss, which was sometimes the charity is more about the giver than the than the receiver. I'd say, again, if the ends you know, justify the means. Okay, so so the giver is giving because it makes them feel good. So somebody's still getting some much needed <laughs> well, resources, it's better than right? Nothing. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. No, is that not true? Oh, well, it is. But the problem is, in my view, is that it's too limited and too narcissistic, and it promotes individualism and not. Um, the fact that I believe our biggest challenge in our nation at this point is hyper-individualism, and it's all about me and mine and doing my thing. Mm -hmm. And what that is doing is undermining community, undermining communities of faith, undermining our democracy, undermining our sense of solidarity with each other. Um, And uh, anything that promotes hyper-individualism, I think, in the end, is really toxic. So the effort is to give your charity. That's true. But it's two feet. Take both steps. Take the step of giving your charitable dollar, your charitable things, but then take the next one and engage with the why we're in such dilemmas, why we're so stuck. 
This is something, this is exactly the question that I had this morning as I listened to National Public Radio's coverage at the border. And I Mm. thought, there are so many organizations, charitable organizations down there, doing great work. I went over to Charity Navigator and I searched this morning and I made some contributions. And then I felt for about 30 seconds, like, good. And then I thought, oh my God, that's a drop in the bucket. What about, and then it seems so overwhelming and unfixable, sister. Mm. So let, let's use what's happening at the border right now as an example of what you've said. Where does oh. the average person step into that to do something? Well, I think there's many opportunities. Uh, and, uh, you know, you mentioned our bus trip and uh, the various trips that we've done around the country. And in 2013, we were in El Paso at Annunciation House. It does amazing work. They're doing so much amazing work. And many of my sister colleagues are spending a week or two down there just trying to be of support and help. So contributions there really help. It makes a difference. But here's the deal. It is created by a broken immigration system, Mm -hmm. a broken immigration policy in our nation. What so many people don't realize is that the, uh, the majority of those seeking asylum from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras are fleeing countries that are uh, where the situation is in uh, intolerable, intolerable because of the violence, because of the drug lords, because of the poor economic realities for families in agrarian settings. And part of it is the U.S. trade policy that put their crops on the national market so that they don't make the same amount of money from their crops that they used to because their crops went on the international market. Rates are lower, so they can't support their families. It was all in an effort to move to a more industrialized uh, Central America. Mm -hmm. But what it's done is created huge instability. And so people are not able to eat, and there's a high level of violence because of that instability, so they flee. Additionally, the unaccompanied minors are really the children that have come are because the drug lords uh, know that they can use children to carry drugs because right. kids won't be prosecuted. And so the complex reality is kid, parents are sending kids north because they don't want them caught in, or killed in this drug trade. So it's, it's, that is complex, but ways to handle it? Get involved in an organization that's working on the systemic issues. Our organization network, we work from a faith perspective on Capitol Hill to change these laws, change trade policy. And there's a new NAFTA that we're highly engaged in. The change the immigration policy. There's two bipartisan bills that are both um, in the in the Senate that would help dreamers and um also those with temporary protective status. Minnesota has a lot of folks with temporary protected status that are losing that status because of the current administration. So bipartisan bills that can make a difference. So get involved in that, as well as give your dollars to good places like Annunciation House. Sister Simone Campbell is with us this morning. She is part of our Women of Faith series here where we're talking with women who are activated. Boy, you can tell how activated she is and energized. (laughs) You can hear the energy and her commitment uh, by some of the most urgent spiritual 
a policy, political, yes, in some cases, philosophical questions of our day. And I'm asking you as we develop this conversation this morning, if you are in a faith community that is deeply involved in this kind of social justice work, is there a place, maybe your faith community, whatever it is, does good work in this space, but you see a place where they could be more active, where they're being guided by the most urgent questions of the day, perhaps what's happening at our U.S. southern border. Look around and uh, and come in here in this conversation to say, I wish we could do this or we are doing this. And it's setting a great example. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. And on Twitter at Carrie MPR, uh, where Obi says the church I serve takes seriously our call to make a difference for people in public life, chiefly through partnerships with Believe in Home and Isaiah, Minnesota, two very good organizations. I resonate with Sister Simone's concern for deep spirituality and biblical insights to fuel this holy work. To the phones to Therese in Rogers. Hi, Therese. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi, good morning. Hi. What's your story on this? You know, I thank you, Sister Simone. I am in a faith community that is just exudes social justice. Uh, the Nuns in the Hood, uh, the Visitation Monastery over in North Minneapolis, is a, you know, I've just left there this morning from Wednesday morning Mass and using today's gospel and just talking about, you know, who are you going to be in Jesus' likeness today and what will you do? And our prayers were about the um, uh, what's going on at the southern border. Uh, the uh, Sister Catherine praying for the gentleman whose name resonates with her in her daily prayers that was killed down the block from them. And, um, you know, that that we are called to do. And I am so blessed to be in, you know, this faith community, the Ascension Church that is has a, a Spanish Mass every, you know, Sunday morning, along with the English Mass, and this congregation that is, uh, you know, supporting families that are worried and, and individuals that are worried about being deported, you know, being able to support them when someone does get um, detained by ICE. And um, uh, I, I'm, you know, grateful that this Polish-Irish um, uh, um, uh, Eastern European immigrant community has embraced this, uh, this Hispanic Latina community and are there for them and doing what we can locally to support what's happening in this horrible immigration uh, policies of of, uh, this administration. Therese, uh, this is a good moment for me to ask Sister Simone about whether you believe, now we we talked about some of the organizations at the border, Sister, who are getting involved in this. Do you believe that there is more or there are some unique ways that congregations of many different faiths could be having an influence on what's happening, just in the power of, you know, their their collective influence. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that is uh, part of what, what, I mean, Isaiah in Minnesota is, is <laughs> up to their uh, earlobes in, in making, trying to make change and doing organizing from uh, community by community. Um, we work with them often on some of the the Minnesota issues that we deal with at the federal level. The challenge, I th- I think, is to 
let, communities are called to let their hearts be broken open by the stories around us and then respond. I mean, the the what was just mentioned about a sister mentioning the name of a praying for the, the person who was killed down the street. I mean, obviously, the sister's heart was broken open by that that person's reality and then holds that person in prayer and action. It, it's letting ourselves be affected by the realities around us and then responding. And I think one of those things where faith becomes so important in this movement to action is that it's not a cerebral or intellectual thing, but it really opens us to the pain of the world. Touch the pain of the world is real is part of our challenge. And we see it. Jesus, in my tradition, uh, uh, Christianity, a Catholic, uh, Jesus is always walking towards trouble. He walked towards the pain. He walked towards the lepers. He walked towards the outcasts, the folks who were most downtrodden. And then he walked towards, uh, you know, the officials, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and gave them trouble for being too hard on those who were suffering. So it's, it's in the scriptures, it's the call to both sides. Let your heart be broken open by the stories of people and respond, and sometimes respond with our elected leaders. Do Do you think it's uh, the challenge here is to hear and be moved by the scripture on a Wednesday morning na- mass, as Therese described, and then the hard thing is now I'm stepping into a uh, a sense of sense of political chaos here. Now I'm stepping into how's whatever I do going to really make a difference? Is it that, you know, how do I bridge the gap between, yes, I've been moved by these words, I want to do something that matters, and it might be risky. Yeah, it might be risky. But, but at least what I've found is that being connected with people's stories, having my heart broken by the stories that I've heard, then I'm more aware of their need than I am of my uh, fear or timidity. Mm. Um, it just becomes urgent. Uh, I, I met um, in, in 2012, I met uh, Jeannie and her partner, Lynn, and they had just come from Jeannie's sister's uh, memorial memorial service. Her name was Margaret. Margaret died because she didn't have health care. And so they brought me her picture, Margaret's picture. And I've carried Margaret's picture since then. And for me, no more Margaret should die in our nation because of the lack of access to health care. That's wrong in the richest nation on earth. And uh, for me, it's a sin. And so Margaret fuels my passion. And as long as I'm aware of the needs of Margaret and folks like her, then I'm less inclined to be fearful for myself. And for me, that's acting from the gospel. A call here from Linda in Woodbury. Hi, Linda. Hi. You're a pastor, uh, is that right? Yes, yes, I Glad am. You called. I pastor. Yes, I pastor a church in Bayport, and we have made an attempt to become more and more social justice oriented. The roadblocks that we find is that there are people that have been attending Christian churches for years who feel like the doctrine uh, developed by certain churches is more important than the message that Jesus actually taught. And um, so slowly over time, I've been able to, and there were many people there that were on the side of social justice before I arrived, Mm -hmm. but for some... They have to understand that you can preach about who Jesus was all you want. But as Peter Gomes said, we spent 
we have spent way too much time preaching about Jesus and about not about what he actually taught. So for those people who resist the risk, resist that message, I've even had people tell me that um, we shouldn't talk about social justice because it's too political. Mm-hmm. Most of my congregation clearly understands that we are compelled by the message of Jesus, just like the sister said, to walk for the little, walk toward and be involved in the little, the lost, the least, and the last. As and. When you root it in the gospel and you don't root it in a political party, people can be begin to come along. How does that sound, sister? Well, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I, I mean, I, some people say, oh, you're such a Democrat. No, I'm an equal opportunity annoyer. <laughs> it just happens that some <laughs> Democrat policies are closer to what I think is true. And I, I think... What the pastor was just saying is that it's rooting it in our faith traditions is then a challenge to all of us, a challenge to conversion. We we talk easily about being converted. And for me, this tradition of Lent is all about changing our hearts and all this. But we actually don't like change. I usually can suggest how somebody else ought to change, <laughs> but not see it for myself. And so the challenge is to grow together in the discovery of how we move forward, how we move towards those who are in pain or those who are left out. Now, sometimes the person in pain is the legislators. legislators. Mm. And one of the things I've discovered here in D.C. is they need pastoral care, too. And so one of our our, uh, efforts is to hold compassion for our elected representatives that we lobby, and in holding compassion for them, help them see and be free to hold compassion for others that will be impacted by their legislation. That is is valuable work, and I would think it's very challenging at times when you've been to visit a certain member of Congress five times to tell them, and they're stuck in a place that you think isn't constructive. Where do you dig for the compassion there, sister? Well, the the challenge is is to hold their concern and where is their concern, their fear, their anxiety, and then talk to them about how they're better than that. See the good in them. See what they can do. I, I, I did it with Speaker Ryan. Before he was Speaker, uh, uh, Paul Ryan, and I would lobby him, but he had the hardest time dealing with my compassion. He would say, oh, I sleep on a cot in the office, and you know, I don't want to be contaminated by D.C. And I'd say to him, but is that good for you? Is that, is that really, how do you ever get a break? That doesn't seem healthy. Do you take care of yourself? And, oh, he couldn't handle it. He had to change the change the subject. But the next time I came back to lobby him, he remembered who I was. He was connected, and it changed the quality of the conversation. I'm going to go right back to the phones to Melissa in St. Paul. Melissa, thank you so much for waiting. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. And um, uh, thank you to Sister Simone, uh, Simone for all of her work. And um, I called because I'm a pastor of a pretty new—I'm a white pastor of a pretty new bilingual— Spanish and English um, Lutheran ministry, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that that strikes me in the work that I do is that um, often I think we use the term social justice as a way actually to kind of continue to separate ourselves, and I hear a lot of talk as we are helping them, ah. 
And and I'm not sure if it was if it's actually true that Martin Luther King Jr. said that you know Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour of the day, but um, but they are, and it seems to me that as people of faith to really um, engage in in social justice and in in the work that we're called to do, then our Sunday mornings cannot continue to be segregated because we. We, if we want to see ourselves as the body of Christ, or uh, you know, as all people that are part of a body, we need to get to know each other. And the and the way as people of faith that we really can engage with with each other and and really get to know each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is if we're actually worshiping together. And um, and so uh, that's one piece of of it. And the other is that often um, we. I won't do things like mission trips and things. So we wanted, even though we have immigrants, lots of immigrants, and and I know a lot about immigration, we actually took a trip to the border uh, as a learning time Mm -hmm. to be witnesses and to bring that back and to share with other congregations and other people and, and and to be there physically and to be with our brothers and sisters. And so, um, the, the idea of rugged individualism permeates our churches, and and so when we worship together and and we praise God together, then we we can grow, and um and and that's when when true justice happens. So thank you. Hey Melissa, thank you, sister. We we've had some other calls and questions about what you said about rugged individualism. So maybe you would add some context to what you mean by that and how we see it in. What what in the culture and in our faith communities? Well, I th- I think it's uh, a our wealthy nation allows us to think that we can do this life alone, and we think that the measure of uh, who we are is how I take care of myself and this uh, self reference. And it, actually, I, I've done some study on this and. You know, it was really President Reagan that changed the story of the founding of our nation. Uh, You know, our Constitution says we the people. It's a communal reality uh, and to promote the general welfare. Well, President Reagan and his campaigns changed it from being we the people to being the rugged individual who went out west and, (laughs) you know, settled the west by himself and took, you know, made the country what it is. It's it's all that... uh, individual narrative where the reality is there were uh, communities of people who made the West, who engaged with the Native peoples in some good ways and in some not so good ways. And the lie that we're based in individualism then allows our economy to become the only thing that matters because it's the economy that takes care of us. We don't take care of the economy. And it's the the fact that I feel I'm in charge of myself and we criticize people who don't take care of themselves because everybody should. And this is where this saying comes from, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do it yourself. As opposed to saying, it's we the people working together to form a more perfect union. And we're are responsible f- to each other and for each other in the process. You know, so the shift in how we think of ourselves as a nation has really changed the political conversation, and we're trying to change it that's back. That's so interesting because it's more faithful. Because I I do think that it appeals to maybe something uniquely American about this idea that 
I am responsible for myself. Just give me the tools, give me the education, and I will do the rest. I think we like to that that sparks our imaginations, our our imaginations about our own identities. And yet, when I think about some of the well, because we've been talking a bit about politics, politicians who leverage that idea that we are better collectively together than we are individually, you can see that that appeals to, you know, the American imagination as well. We seem to be kind of at war with the idea of these two identities. Well, I think that's really an interesting point because uh, it makes me think of this guy that I met in Indianapolis who was a really avid Trump supporter. And and, uh, this was in 2016 before the election. And I asked him, well, how come? And well, he was all for the the now president Mm -hmm. because, you know, he was tough and he'd say, you know, I – he told people they were fired and he wouldn't take any, (laughs) you know, any – Goofing around from anybody. (laughs) And uh, so then he got – and I said, well, why does that matter? He says, well, my parents always taught me if I worked hard and played by the rules, I'd get ahead. And if I worked hard, played by the rules, I'd get ahead. And he kept saying that. And then he said, but I haven't gotten ahead and it's even harder for my kids. And some – after a conversation, something – I think it was the Holy Spirit – inspired me to say to him – Gee, it really seems like you feel ashamed that you didn't measure up to your parents' expectation. Is that true? Mm. And bam, he got tears in his eyes. And it surprised both of us. We were both were kind of startled. I, I leapt in too close to him. But what it made me realize was that if you work hard, play by the rules, you get ahead, is all the individual messaging. And the fact is he got caught in an economic, in an economy where the bottom 40% income has grown like 14% in 36 years. So while he, but he felt he had failed, where it was the economic system that had kept him stuck and his kids stuck in, in a system that is only serving the top and not serving everybody. This is the the intersection for me of faith and the economy and our need to be community so that we see the reality of everyone and not judge ourselves based on my own personal narrative that I failed. KJ says on Twitter, I left my faith community because they've become more concerned with imposing and forcing their morals and values on everyone else through political manipulation. You hear somebody who's pretty deeply disillusioned there. Yeah. Uh, they add they hypocritically support uh, corrupt political figures to move their agenda despite the damage they cause. Here's Ryan who asks, how do you start conversations about social justice in a community that's in the mindset of, if we don't talk about it, it's not happening? Well, I think you've got some practice at that, don't you, sister? <laughs> yes. And the best place to start is asking people their story. How did they get there? What What are they concerned about? We re, uh, When I was in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago, we were down in Wabasha and did this. Uh, we're doing a series of rural roundtables because I'm a city girl and I don't know about the rural reality. We had this fabulous, fabulous conversation. But it the, I opened the conversation with 17 people at the table. I opened the conversation with, well, what do city folk get wrong hmm. about <laughs> rural reality. And we had this vibrant conversation, but it was their telling their lived experience and their story. And what I realized is we don't often have those chances to engage in conversation across uh, either geographic distance or political distance. But if you ask a curious question, 
it often uh, results in some greater interest or greater depth of uh, understanding between two people. You know, I I think I feel like we've experienced that. We we did a show called Flyover, which was really about people calling in to talk about their experience and how it infuses and influences how they see the country. Mm. I think Mm -hmm. it's really hard to deny someone's experience actually what you did with in 2016 with that guy that you were talking about talking to at the Trump rally it's really hard to say your experience doesn't count so I mean that that's difficult we want to honor one another's experiences we may not agree with the conclusion that people drew about that experience but I think we're we're a little slower to dismiss somebody's experience overall what do you think Oh, absolutely. And actually, I think for me, this is where faith leads me to that quality of engagement, valuing the dignity of each person and trying to understand it. And I think in the uh, efforts at cross-cultural, cross-race lines, across any of these lines that we've drawn for ourselves, is to hear the story explains... Uh, can open our eyes if we're but willing to walk into a new space, if we're willing to let ourselves change. That's the challenge. We miss Daniel uh, from Minneapolis who called to say, I'm a minister at a faith community that does a lot of social justice work. Right now, we're focused on racial justice. We are a majority white, wealthy congregation. So it's especially important. The obstacle, it's interior work to rethink your views. I guess some advice there, Sister Simone, for Daniel to get uh, to get some of that reflection and contemplation going. Well, see, for me, I think that is the key to change, to be willing to change. Um, and it's it's really hard, but it's about being about doing for me, it's about doing a meditation practice where every morning I meditate for about an hour, and it's quiet just listening. And it's not me telling God what to do, which often my prayer was for a long time, <laughs> but it's rather listening and and trying to be open to where is God calling me and where, what am I, what do I need to be open to today? And to say the prayer of I'm yours, use me, and to, to mean it. And it's that quality of seeing that I need to change in order to be better gift to the people around me that moves me. And to see the call, uh, Jesus's call, you know, the poor in spirit, the the meek. And one thing about meekness, people think that's being timid. And Lord knows I'm not timid usually. <laughs> but what Pope Francis says meekness is, is the willingness to learn from each other. And I think that's at the heart of creating community, heart of creating a commitment to justice. If I'm willing to learn from you, Mm. then then I'm willing to change. I'm willing to grow. Uh, How long have you been a member of a religious order? How many years has it been? (laughs) 150 years. No, no. It's, uh, uh, let's see, uh, it's 50-some years, 54 maybe, 53, And so how old were you when you joined? I was a puppy. I was 18. It was the summer after my freshman year in college, and uh, I was uh, too eager to get going. I, I was fed up with school. I wanted to get going. I wanted to be about mission, and 
my community, Sisters of Social Service, are all about social engagement and working for justice. And so I jumped into uh, my religious community and uh, been here ever since. There's so much I want to ask you about that. But um, when you joined, did you think, I'm in, knowing that you were going to also be activist, because that's that was the order that you were joining, but did you also believe, I am entering into a more contemplative life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, the By who I am, I have always had a hunger for the, the quiet reflection and have found uh, the gospel not as just words on the paper, but alive in our midst. And um, I had a great... Uh, education as a kid where we would study the gospel, but we'd always apply it to now. And that's how I grew up. And as I say now, uh, you know, Jesus and justice, they obviously are connected. They both begin with J. So, you know, they are connected. And um, I learned that early and I was supported by my family, I'm sure, in a variety of ways. But, uh, But the heart of it is, is having a prayer practice of listening listening to the needs around us, listening to the wee small voice within. That's the challenge. What do you know now about being a nun that that I guess you wish you'd understood um, what on that day that you joined the order or when you were new, when you were that puppy? What, what do you understand now about this? Oh, that it is a rich, amazing life of engagement with my sisters and of connection and that the things that are annoying or where I resist are the uh, places where I'm called to grow. And so I, I've come to say that my resistance is the is the edge of spiritual growth and you need to pay attention to it as opposed to hide from it. And so I, I try to pay attention. The other day in the office, I, I got a criticism from one of the staff because I, some, something that I'd tweeted wasn't so good. And so I got defensive. Mm-hmm. And I thought later during meditation, I thought, oh, Simone, you better pay attention to that. You're resisting it. Open up. Open up. What do you need to learn? And it's that quality of dailiness, of daily struggle, of criticisms that we could just you know resist or hide from that I find are rich nuggets of opportunity. I wanted to ask you about something. I was reading an interesting opinion piece by Brandy Miller. She's a, a campus minister and a justice program director. And she was writing about her conviction that patriarchy in faith communities, not just in the Catholic community, but in many faith communities, is going to be very difficult to dislodge. And she writes in this piece In Christian spaces, patriarchy is not seen as a social phenomenon, but as a God-given directive and order for the flourishing of society. Is her assumption right? And do you think she's right that it's going to be very difficult to dislodge? (laughs) Well, I agree. It's going to be difficult to dislodge, but it's not based in Christianity. It's based in the culture that followed the first four centuries of Christianity. And the a friend of mine, Sister Chris Shank from uh, Cleveland, has written a book about uh, the archaeological evidence of women's leadership mm-hmm. in, within the Christian church in the first five centuries of Christianity. And it, it's just so compelling. It's so powerful. It really shows women's leadership. But it got lost in culture. 
But ironically, um, women religious congregations were a way for women to have leadership. In the Middle Ages, it was a way of protecting women and women exercising leadership at the same level as bishops because the abbesses of the monasteries had the same clout as a bishop. Wow. And so a bunch of the fight (laughs) was about male-female control and all this, but the power of an abbess was in her... Uh, administration of the the territory that was under her rule. So that there's a lot that's missing. Now, here's the hard part, is that what has gotten solidified, I believe, is about culture. And within the Catholic tradition, I don't know the other tradition that the woman wrote about, but the Catholic tradition is a culture of monarchy. The guys think they're monarchs. And it's not about religion. It's about the cult- European culture of monarchy. And the fact is, in the U.S., we live in a democratic culture, and the democracy is every voice counts. But the monarch thinks they're right, and what they say goes no matter what. So it's a culture clash, uh, and not so much, at least from my perspective, of a spiritual clash. So our effort within the Catholic tradition is to bring some folks into the 21st century and say, hey, a democratic culture is possible in faithfully in the Christian tradition. You know, it it is interesting to hear you say that guys think they're monarchs. Does that go right up to the Pope and to the people around him? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, yesterday I was corresponding with a a woman who's working on trying to get women's voices into decision making in the Vatican. And we were emailing and uh, her, she's researched how people get jobs at the Vatican. I found it fascinating. There's a central place where your curriculum vitae needs to go, but they control which one, when the, you need a, when you need someone to fill a job, well, <laughs> they apply to this office to get qualified people, but they control who gets sent out. And so she listed all these women who were qualified, who had their vitae there, but they never got sent out. Gee, I wonder to why. The, hmm. I know. Strange, huh? <laughs> strange. We're sure she couldn't quite hold up to the stress. <laughs> it, it would just be difficult for her. I mean, it, it's it's really painful. It's really painful. So she's trying to I'm more power to her. She's really trying to stir this up and and, uh, highlight because nobody knew how how this happens. So So how how do you reconcile the the hypocrisy of the Vatican? That's not to say that everything the Pope's doing is I I don't want to say that is a bad thing. He's doing some good work. Of course not. But there is hypocrisy. You've been a you've actually been on the receiving end of that. How do you reconcile that with. Um, you know, your own beliefs about the work that the Catholic Church does and the fact that this is the structure. Right, right. Well, uh, for me as a Catholic sister, the joy of my life is that being a Catholic sister, we get sent out to where the gospel is needed, where the gospel wouldn't be otherwise. So I could never be a cleric or worried about the structure of the institution. That's just not in me. I'm glad somebody does. I wish they'd do a better job, but... You know, so for me, my religious community supports the work to the edges, to the margins, to the creating change. Um, where I think it's it's really important is Pope Francis has actually done an amazing job of trying to translate into 21st century language the the call to this two feet to the 
charity and justice. And his leadership has been really important on that. And his call to being bold and passionate and to having joy and a sense of humor. Those are two values of holiness that I care about. Sister Simone, keep up the good fight. Thank you so much for making some time and a busy schedule for us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Sister Simone Campbell, Catholic nun, lawyer, and the founder of the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice, the latest voice in our ongoing series, Women of Faith. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at CarrieMPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.